Hey there, this is Steve from the Baked and Awake podcast, and you're listening to one of my favorite true crime shows, the California Dreaming Podcast. Thanks for letting me stop by and visit with your audience today, Roseanne. Have a great show. We'll see you on the flip side. Until next time, smoke indica and do shit anyway. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. Before we get into today's show, I'd like to take the time to thank those of you who continue to support California Dreaming on Patreon. We have been chugging along for more than a year now, and it has certainly been a labor of love. And I can't tell you how much your contributions to keep us going means to me. This week, I'd like to say thank you to Melissa C. for increasing her pledge. And if you would like to help support the production of California Dreaming, but wish not to sign up for Patreon, you can do so by making a one-time donation through PayPal by using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you again for everything. The story that we're going to talk about today is one that's been bothering me ever since it began to unfold about two years ago. I've been kind of waiting around to see if any new details about the case were to emerge before I delve into it, but there really doesn't seem to be any kind of significant progress being made ever since the story began to make headlines. And to be honest, I'm not even sure what kind of crime actually happened here because as outlandish as it sounds, there's a part of me that feels like this case stinks. So many questions surrounding it and none of them really getting any answers. Because honestly, I don't put anything past anyone these days when it comes to some of the things that we are going to get into today. It was just about a year ago that I talked to you about hoaxes. And I wanted to do this case then, but like I said, I also wanted to wait and see what would develop over time. So instead, last November in episode 18, I brought you the story entitled The Gone Girl Hoax. It was the case of Denise Huskins, kidnapped in July of 2015. When she was reported missing by her boyfriend, his story was so bizarre, investigators were not buying what he was trying to sell. And then, 
when Denise reappeared two days later, hundreds of miles away. Police doubled down on their belief that it was all fake and even held a press conference stating so, that the kidnapping was nothing more than an elaborate ruse. But this was not the case at all. Denise was in fact kidnapped. She was sexually assaulted and some months later when her attacker tried to do it again, he was caught, linked to Denise's crime, and is currently serving a 40-year prison sentence. And Denise, just this year, was awarded compensation to the tune of $2.5 million for the mishandling of her case, and not to mention the false accusations made by the Vallejo, California law enforcement. So, it's just a cautionary tale to not be too quick to jump to conclusions just because a story sounds too outrageous to be true. If you haven't listened to episode 18, give it a listen sometime. It really has some elements that are stranger than fiction. In wanting to bring this case to you, it got me thinking about real fake kidnappings, if that makes any sense. Denise was accused of faking her kidnapping, but it turned out to be very real and very traumatizing for her. She survived and gave a very impassioned impact statement at her attacker sentencing. But getting into the story had me once again digging around on the internet, looking at some actual fake stories of abductions orchestrated by the abductee or people associated with the abductee. And these things really do happen. So when we start to look at the facts of the case that we're going to discuss for this episode, I want all of us to keep in mind that stranger things have happened and nowadays nothing is out of the question when taking a look at a completely bizarre story. So I found this list online and you know I like lists. I'm not going to go over the whole thing but I am going to pull a couple of examples of kidnap fakers. A couple of these we may have heard before, some maybe not. But the point is that people have tried to pull some wild things, and I want all of us to keep that in mind when we get at the heart of today's story. The first fake kidnapping I wanted to share with you is a story of Curtis, and I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this. I think it's Sliwa, S-L-I-W-A. He was the one in the late 70s who formed the Guardian Angels, those volunteers who put together a formal type of neighborhood watch type of organization. They patrolled the streets of New York City to help fight crime. Obviously, groups like this are not all that welcomed by the police force, who are the ones that are actually supposed to be combating crime. And thus, the guardian angels would allege that they were being threatened and harassed in order to get them to disband. On August 20th, 1980, Sliwa, accused three New York City transit police officers of kidnapping him to tell him that if he didn't stop the guardian angel patrols specifically on the subways, they were going to kill him. So, fast forward 12 and a half years to June 19, 1992. There was yet another threat against Sliwa's life when he held a taxi. The cab had actually been stolen by two men, and they, in turn, kidnapped Sliwa and actually shot him twice. He barely escaped with his life by jumping out the window. 
He would survive his injuries, but while he was recuperating, he made a very surprising admission. The 1980 kidnapping that he reported was actually a hoax. The taxi one was real, but the New York City transit officers never happened. He would go on to confess that his guardian angels organization staged a number of hoaxes, six of them to be exact. This all happened in the first couple years that the guardian angels had formed in order to drum up some publicity for themselves. They made up pretend threats being launched against them. They staged phony muggings in order to make it look like they were actually helping to stop criminal activity. And as a result, Sliwa was actually sued by the Transit Authority's Police Benevolent Association. So the next fake kidnapping I wanted to talk to you about was actually suggested to me by a listener some time ago as the potential future vacation series as it takes place in England. But as you all know, we went with the James Bolger story instead. On February 19, 2008, nine-year-old Shannon Matthews left for school in Dewsbury, England and vanished, an apparent victim of an abduction. A massive search was launched for the missing girl, but no trace of her was ever found. The fear was that she was in grave danger, possibly murdered. Weeks had passed, and no information as to her whereabouts surfaced. So a £50,000 reward was offered for information leading to her safe return. And then, just shy of a month later, on March 14th, Shannon turned up alive in Bately Carr, a nearby district. She was being kept in a flat where a man named Michael Donovan resided. But things were not as simple as they seemed. Michael Donovan was no stranger to the girl. It just so happened that he was the uncle of a man who was in a romantic relationship with Shannon's mother, Karen Matthews. And the whole kidnapping scenario was a hoax fabricated by her her own mother. The revelation of her mother's involvement in setting up this entire fake kidnapping sparked massive public outrage. Shannon was indeed kidnapped by Donovan, and he kept her at his place for the 24 days that she went missing. He plied her with drugs and kept her hidden inside the bottom portion of a divan bed. The idea was to have Donovan pretend to discover Shannon missing at some other predetermined location, and then he would take responsibility for her safe return, and not only would he attempt to lay claim on the £50,000 reward, he would also be hailed a hero. Then the two masterminds of this plan would split the proceeds and all would be well. The plan was found out, and both Karen Matthew and Michael Donovan would be sentenced to eight years in prison for the hoax. And another good one on the list, well, it's not good, it's bad, but interesting might be a better word. Another interesting staged kidnapping. The pseudo-victim was a 15-year-old African-American girl named Tawana Brawley. She was from Wappinger Falls, New York. On November 24, 1987, she seemingly disappeared without a trace. 
For four days, she was missing. And then suddenly, she turned up inside a trash bag placed next to an apartment building. Her body was smeared with feces. Her clothing had been ripped and racial epithets were written all over her body. She was rushed to the hospital where she reported that she had been taken to a wooded area nearby by three white men and raped repeatedly over the course of those four days. Within a few days, Brawley did point the finger at Dutchess County Assistant District Attorney Stephen Pagonis, claiming that he was one of her attackers. National attention and outrage grew when it was believed that D.A. Pagones was involved in the kidnapping and assault of Tawana Brawley, and before long, she was being represented by several high-profile civil rights activists, including the Reverend Al Sharpton. They publicly called out several high-ranking government officials of a conspiracy to cover up this brutal assault on Brawley. Well, as the details of this case were being examined, and as the evidence was subject to intense scrutiny, the case did actually make it to the grand jury for consideration to go to trial. But the grand jury went on to note several inconsistencies in the story Brawley was telling, and eventually they came to the conclusion that the kidnapping and sexual assault never took place. It was all made up by Brawley, and her reason because she was afraid of being punished by her stepfather, who was described as having a violent temper for skipping school and coming home too late. Some of the red flags that led to this conclusion? Well, forensic examination indicated that there had been no sexual assault, much less over a period of four days perpetrated by three men. There was also no proof that she had been held in the woods for four days. Also, friends from school witnessed seeing Brawley at a party during the course of the four days that she said she was being held captive. Brilliant, right? Show up at a party when you're going to spin a wild story about being held captive in the woods during that exact time frame. And one witness reported seeing Brawley getting into the trash bag. So yeah, her story crumbled pretty quickly. Assistant D.A. Pagones was completely cleared of all charges, and he followed that up by slapping Brawley and her attorneys and Al Sharpton with a defamation lawsuit, which he won in 1998. But Brawley didn't actually start paying the judgment against her until 2013. So this thing dragged on for decades. And the last I was able to find about it, Brawley was ordered to pay $190,000, but it has since grown to more than $400,000 with interest. She is now working as a nurse and has a little over $600 a week garnished from her wages. But the one thing she's never done is admit to the hoax, nor has she apologized for it, which Pagonis has said he'd really rather have. As for Sharpton, he was ordered to pay $65,000, which he did through fundraising and donations. And he also continues to refuse to apologize, citing that he believed Brawley and he has no regrets standing up for her. And the last fake story that I want to share with you is a little more lighthearted. In 1930, Flint Rim 
was a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, and they were looking to be in first place in the National League and hopefully go to the World Series. The team was in Brooklyn to play three games against the Robins, who were also eyeballing first place. Flint was set to pitch in Game 2, scheduled for September 19th, but he mysteriously vanished from his hotel and missed the game. He went missing for two days, and he reappeared at the hotel, the smell of alcohol emanating from him. When he was asked where he'd been, he kind of tried to avoid the question, until a reporter cracked a joke and asked if he'd been kidnapped. The proverbial light bulb went off in his head, and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, kidnapped, yeah, I was kidnapped. That's what happened. He went on to say that gangsters armed with guns kidnapped him and took him to a cabin in the woods. They plied him with liquor because they were wagering on the Robins to win, and they wanted to keep him hostage and drunk so he wouldn't be able to pitch in the game. But apparently... Good old Flint had a reputation for being a drunk, so people weren't exactly buying this tall tale. But the team's general manager was like, well, we can't prove that it didn't happen, and he definitely smelled the part, so yeah. No evidence was ever uncovered that corroborated Flint's story, and his team did end up winning the pennant without him and his tomfoolery was never really looked into any further. Well, 21 years later at a team reunion, Flint admitted that he was on a bender with some friends. They probably thought it was funny, but they may not have if they had lost the championship. Dreamers, when you hear these stories in their initial stages, Our first inclination is to believe the alleged victim when they recount the details and the traumatic event that they've just been made to endure. We listen and we care because that's who we are and we rally for justice to be swift so survivors can move on and heal. And you definitely don't want what happened to Denise Huskins to happen to anyone to be publicly called a liar by law enforcement when her assault and trauma was very real. And the case that we are going to talk about today has some of those elements that kind of have you wondering, is this story really a thing? At this point, before we start, I want to say that I'm on the fence about this case. I don't know what to make of it just yet, but I am hoping by the end of this to land on one side or the other. Did a kidnapping take place or was this some sort of elaborate hoax orchestrated by this Northern California couple? In today's 70th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Sherry Papini. On November 2nd, 2016, Keith Papini went about his typical morning, getting ready to head out to work. He was employed at Best Buy as an audio-video specialist. He and his wife Sherry crossed paths in the hallway as she was up just before 7 a.m. checking on one of their kids. 
When Keith arrived home later that day, he saw that Sherry's car was parked out front. And when he went through the door, he expected his usual welcome from her and the kids, who typically come rushing to the door to greet him. But as he entered into the home, all was quiet. He took a look around the house. He checked in the bedrooms. Still, nothing. So his next place to look is out in the backyard. They could be playing out there, but he didn't see them out there either. He figured, well, they must be together doing some sort of activity. So nothing really got Keith all that alarmed right away. Okay, so now, this next detail is kind of one of the first things about this case that piqued my curiosity. I might be overthinking it, but you're going to come to find that I'm going to overthink a lot of things in this story. So you're going to have to bear with me because I really want to pick this apart. But once Keith spent some time searching the house and the yard and didn't find his wife and kids, he pulled out his iPhone and signed into the Find My iPhone app. Those of you who have iPhones are familiar with it. And there might be a similar feature on Samsung Galaxy phones. I'm not sure because I haven't used one. But if someone signed into your Apple account, can't find their Apple device, and you know it can be your phone or your MacBook or your iPad, you can sound a loud alarm to chime from it and you can track it down. My daughter has used Find My iPhone when I'm taking a nap and I'm not answering her text messages to blast me awake with life or death questions like what's for dinner or can she go out with her friends, etc. That's what Keith did. He signed into the Find My iPhone app to find his wife's phone. And of course, the map shows the location of the phone too. So if he were to set off the alarm and it's not within earshot, he can see where it is on his map and he can head in that direction. So right away, I'm like, wait a second. Why are you going through all the extra trouble to get into the Find My iPhone app? You have to sign into your Apple account. You have to wait for the locations of all of your devices to populate and then chime the alarm or look at the map. It's not that much of an inconvenience if you can't find your device and you're trying to locate it. It's actually quite convenient. But if you're looking for your spouse or your family member, there's a way to find them that's several less steps than activating Find My iPhone. It's called calling or texting. Think about it for a second, dreamers. On the typical average day, you're doing your thing, your significant other is doing their thing, and you have a pretty routine schedule going on. If you're expecting everyone to be home when you arrive home, and for some odd reason when you get there, nobody's there, I don't know about all of you listening, but I might shoot a text. Hey, I'm home. What are you all up to? How are the kids? Something like that, right? I may even call 
but I'd probably go with a text first. If I know that they've got their hands full with the kids, it might be hectic, it might be loud, so most likely I try texting. If a few minutes passed and I didn't get a response, I might try calling then. And for most of us, this wouldn't even really happen if the significant other or the family member is due home at a particular time and we're not going to be there, we'd most likely send them a text ahead of time. I ran to the store with the kids. We're walking the dogs. We're at the park. I'm picking up dinner, whatever. But in this situation, Keith came home ostensibly expecting to be greeted by the family. Nobody's there. So he goes straight to find my iPhone. That kind of sort of stinks to me. Something's fishy. I feel like there's either one of two, maybe more things going on here. One is maybe he just doesn't want to bother his wife with a text or a call. To use find my iPhone, you don't have to necessarily chime the alarm. You can just look at the map and see where it's at. And then he could just deduce from there based on the phone's location. That's where Sherry's at. I guess I could buy that reasoning. I just did that myself the other day with my daughter's phone. She was driving home. She couldn't exactly tell me how long it was going to be for her to get home because she's new at driving and not that great at ETA estimations. And I wanted to meet her outside with the dogs so we could walk them together. She didn't want me to call or text while she was driving, so she told me, just look at find my iPhone to see where she's at. So, I totally get it. I just did it yesterday. Then I thought, perhaps there's a little bit of a more serious reason why he doesn't want to call or text. Maybe he's thinking she's up to something and he wanted to see her location without her knowing he was looking for her. I mean, this is totally jumping to all kinds of conclusions on my part. But remember what I said at the beginning. Based on the hoaxy stories that I shared with you, people are capable of some wild and crazy things. Who knows what is exactly going on with this couple and what the state of their marriage was like. We certainly don't, and it's really none of our business, but we are free to make inferences based on some of their actions, right? Maybe the couple were having some trust issues. Maybe there had been some infidelity on one or both of their parts. Maybe Keith was suspicious of his wife and wanted to track her phone covertly to see if he could determine, based on her location, what she might be up to. Who knows? By all appearances, Keith and Sherry seemed like quite the adorable couple. And he actually conducted an interview in 2020, and he seemed genuinely emotional when speaking about this ordeal. But you all know, and I know, that appearances can play tricks on us. Social media not only shows us what's on the surface, but it also shows us what our friends and family want to show us. Sherry Papini's social media was so mom-centric and so child-centric that the media actually dubbed her Supermom 
based on all the things that she posted and what everyone knew about her. Supermom is quite a lofty moniker. But perhaps Supermom wasn't always super loyal. And this is why Keith opted for the Find My iPhone. And then there's this. And it's the question swirling around this story. Did Keith know that he wasn't going to be able to get a hold of his wife by calling and texting? That he needed to find Sherry's phone and he knew that he wasn't going to find her? Is that weird? Yeah, it's weird. So, what did the Find My iPhone tell him? Well, it indicated that Sherry's phone was near their mailbox. But the way their home and neighborhood were situated, I get the impression that residents are fairly spread far apart from one another and they don't have individual mailboxes attached to their homes or out by the curb. They use cluster mailboxes at a centralized location about a mile or 1.6 kilometers away from their home. So at this point, Keith isn't overly concerned. Maybe she's checking the mail. But is that something she would do with the kids randomly in the middle of the day? And would she walk there? Or would she take her car? Because she didn't. It's parked outside the house. So, Keith jumped in her car and headed towards the mailbox to the location that's pinging on his map. And this is also weird to me. Why did he take her car? He just arrived home, right? Why did he take her car instead of his? He'd just been driving it. And I don't know, like, no matter how mundane the task, no matter how short of a distance, just out of pure habit, don't we all just automatically go to our own vehicle when we head someplace? Unless you live in a situation where you and your significant other pull in one behind the other in a long, single, wide driveway, and for a quick trip just here or there, you might take your spouse's car just because it's the one parked most conveniently. Yeah, okay, but other than that, my car is my car, my husband's car is his car. And unless we make plans to switch cars for whatever reason, I'm always going to get into my own car. I can't say that I've ever known any couple regularly switch cars like no big deal. Anybody? Tell me. Let me know on the Facebook page. So yeah, Keith's actions are totally bugging me. Anyway, he arrived at the mailbox cluster and he did not see Sherry anywhere around the area. He parked her car and he got out and he looked around. He grabbed his phone and he called his mom. Okay, so he's still not going to try to call or text Sherry. I know he's been led to the mailboxes by the Find My iPhone and he's not seeing her, but why not give her a call already? He called his mom and asked her if she had spoken to Sherry, and she told him no, she has not spoken to her. Okay, so call Sherry now? No. He next calls the kids' daycare center and asks 
what time Sherry picked the kids up, and they inform him that his kids were still there. Okay, so now, according to Keith, this is where he started seeing red flags that something was very, very wrong. He turned his attention back to his phone to look for the location of Sherry's. Its location is still being shown near the mailboxes. This time, he sounded the alarm. He began hearing it chiming and he followed the sound until he reached its location. Sherry's iPhone was on the ground, along the roadside, in some grass. And the headphones are still attached to it. And tangled in the headphones with the wire were strands of blonde hair. Keith then took two pictures of Sherry's phone as he found it lying on the ground, and then he called 911. I'm not sure how I feel about the fact that he took pictures of the phone on the ground in the place where he had found it. Part of me thinks that this might make sense. I don't know if I would do the same thing or not. I don't know what purpose it would serve if you plan to call 911 and summon the police to the scene. He could have just left it alone without touching it or contaminating any kind of potential evidence. But taking pictures of it really serves no purpose that I can think of, at least not in the moment. And to be fair to Keith, he's already beginning to put together a very troubling scenario. He can't find his wife. His kids haven't been picked up from daycare, and now he's found Sherry's phone on the ground and no Sherry anywhere. You would think that he might be on the verge of panicking to the point where you cannot dial 911 quick enough, but he had the presence of mind to take pictures of Sherry's phone on the ground when independent of anything else has no real context. What would those pictures mean to anyone about to become involved in this case? There's no frame of reference. The phone is still sitting right there. The only thing I can think of is for these pictures he's taking to be used to bolster the story that's unfolding. If, and I'm only saying if, if this is the makings of a hoax, then pictures would definitely add layers to the story as you're preparing to tell it. Like, yeah, I found her phone, abandoned on the road, her headphones still attached along with her hair. See, look, I have photographic proof. But knowing what we know about the investigation and crime and crime scenes and evidence, all that stuff, I also get wanting to document stuff in real time as well. Maybe Keith was being diligent knowing that something potentially criminal is unfolding. But there is another detail about this phone that has me wondering. The hair tangled in the headphone wires. In his 911 call to police, Keith states, quote, I found her phone and it's got like hair ripped out of it in the headphones. And I'm like totally freaking out thinking somebody like grabbed her. I thought about this a lot. Hair tangled in the headphones. First of all, if Sherry is jogging, I would say that there's almost a 100% probability 
that her hair was pulled back in a ponytail. I'm not much of a jogger, so I'm going to ask some opinions right now in the group. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you what all of you had to say about this. But I am fairly sure that most of the time when I see people with long hair jogging, I think it would look strange and uncomfortable if they had their hair flying around everywhere. I put my hair up all the time just to keep it out of the way when I do stuff, you know? Okay, so now it's a day later, and I asked all of you in the Facebook group about jogging without a ponytail. Lacey R. provided us with a Leonardo DiCaprio gif of him saying, absolutely not. Stephanie S. said that she hikes with her hair down, but it's not super long, just past her shoulders, and that she gets headaches when her hair is up too long, so if that's the case, then she could see why someone would wear it down. Tanya T. provided no answer, other than a gif of a woman running with her hair flailing around. So, I have to assume that this means it would be annoying to run with your hair down. Thanks, Tanya, for your non-answer answer. Karen R. said, all caps, never, punctuated with an exclamation mark, in case the all caps wasn't clear enough. Jacqueline D. said that someone would have to be chasing her, and she's with Karen. Anya K. said running with her hair down sounds horrible to her. Laura L. said she went jogging once with her hair down, but it was because her rubber band broke. Jennifer S. said that she used to jog and wants to reiterate, used to, with her hair down because she does not like the way she looks in a ponytail, and she has even said she fears them. DDJ said that she has never seen anyone with long hair jogging with their hair down. Donna J also said, nope, she can't say that she has. Sue B said, no, also with an exclamation point. Lisa Ann said, never, not once. Mar W, and it always has to be Mar with the obscure examples. She said, yes, she has seen this. Back in the 80s, they used to use so much hairspray that your hair stayed where you put it. <sighs> I guess I could see that. Remember those 80s aerobics videos with the women in the fluorescent spandex workout outfits and the big poofy permed 80s hair all over the place? Yeah, okay, their hair didn't budge. I'll give you that, okay, Mar? And Kate M. concurred with Mar and said, yeah, some guy in her neighborhood in the 80s, he used to have that bald thing happening, no hair on top, long in the back, and he would jog in regular clothes. Okay, that kind of sounds like the neighborhood weird guy. Samantha D. also said no. She can't say that she's ever seen it either. Jen H. said she can't even think deeply unless her hair is pulled back, let alone exercise. It feels like it weighs down her brain cells. Lindsay G. also said no, and she LOL'd at the thought of it. Jennifer S. said, nope. Dominique S., the devil's advocate. She's probably in cahoots with Mar, I'd say. She says, picture it. You're a running nut, planning a marathon. They have quite rigid training runs. You go to jog, and you've got everything but a hairband. The running nut runs anyway. Okay, I could see that. 
And Samantha says, yeah, okay, but this isn't the norm. Donna J said, okay, good point, but people like her with crazy hair have hair ties everywhere, literally everywhere. And I have to agree, we do too, Donna, everywhere. BQ said that she used to run eight miles a day and never left her hair down. That's just weird. And I agree too. Amanda H said, nope. Her hair is to her waist and you can't run with it all over the place. It gets in your face and into your mouth. I think that too. And I don't run. So yeah, I can only imagine my hair being everywhere. Dominique chimed in again, noting that there are too many healthy people on our page who jog. Right? There's like lots of them. Emily C., she did the math for us. Running equals ponytail. No questions asked. Emily H. said, not a freaking chance. She's a runner with long hair and it would never happen, ever. And here we go with Beth Ann T., the rogue runner. She said sometimes she runs with her hair down, but admittedly she'll usually have a ponytail. But in the cold, she'll leave it down. Kate M. said she hasn't seen this and feels it would be unusual. Kimberly P. said never. And Nikki T. said just thinking about this makes her want to shave her head. Anna W. said no. Rebecca S. said no. Donna J. is wondering why I'm asking these ridiculous questions. And I wonder that sometimes too. And lastly... Megan's M said, hell no, cross country, personal exercise, dance, cleaning, anything of that nature requires her hair in a bun or a ponytail. So dreamers, there we have it. With a few oddballs out there that jog with their hair down, maybe you'll picture yourselves running in slow motion with your hair all silky and wavy as you graciously jog through meadows of sunflowers and butterflies. Except for you guys, nobody thinks that this is normal. So that being said, getting back to our story, let's picture Sherry. She's jogging, right? And we're going to assume that she has her long hair in a ponytail. Even the reenactment video of a woman jogging has her hair up. She supposedly got her earbuds plugged into her phone and in her ears. And suddenly she's being abducted. No matter which way she's grabbed, is her assailant going to grab her by the earbuds and the hair and forcibly yank hair out in such a way that it becomes intertwined and tangled into the cord? They're going to have to have grabbed her near the ear, near the headphone cord, and in such a way that yanked out some amount of her hair and managed to get it tangled in. The phone dropped to the ground and the cord, along with the hair, managed to stay tangled together as it falls to the ground. And this is hair that may not have been all that easy to have grabbed at and pulled out if it were in a ponytail. It's possible, but why are the earbuds and hair having so much force applied to them? When I think about this abduction scenario, I feel like someone paid too much attention to the earbuds and the hair. And it doesn't really feel like the way things would have unfolded. Am I suggesting the possibility of planting of evidence? Yes, I am. And when Keith did call, he was adamant that he be believed. Because right off the bat, 
He felt like he wasn't going to be believed. Why would he think that? Well, he said because he knows that many calls coming to 911 are false alarms. As he put it, 90% of the time, they went to the store or they're hiding somewhere. And it's this line of thinking that I'm not convinced is exactly what people we've seen engaged in when they make that desperate phone call to 911 that a loved one is missing. As a matter of fact, police are often the last resort, right? Just in the last couple of cases that we've spoken about on here, with Michael Van Zant, with Brandon Swanson, with Brian Schaefer, countless missing persons cases that we've heard. Concerned loved ones conduct their own searches, sometimes for hours, sometimes for even days. They call friends, they call family, they call hospitals, they call jails. They check all the usual places the person that they are looking for might be. And once they've exhausted all the avenues that they can think of, then they call 911 or the police to report somebody missing. I'd probably do the same because we know our loved ones best, right? We know all the right places to look. We know their habits and where they might end up. And when it comes time to finally break down and call 911, people make that the last resort because police are going to ask, have you checked with everyone? Have you called all of their friends? Not Keith, though. He made a quick once-over looking for Sherry, and he never even tried to call her. He only called his mom and the daycare. He found her phone on the road, okay, admittedly, this could be concerning, but he already assumed that he was not going to be believed. He spoke about this in his interview. He said, the first thing I told them is that this is for real. This is not a joke. This is not a misunderstanding. My wife has been taken and the police need to get there and get there fast and handle this. I just don't feel like he's done everything that he could to do a search for Sherry in these first few minutes after having arrived at home. I don't feel like he did enough. He feels like he's not going to be believed and he quickly needs to get police involved to add to the urgency because he did not spend very much time looking or calling around. And again, that's just my opinion, but I really feel like the average person would have done way more. And there is another part of Keith's interview that has me wondering. He told the correspondent interviewing him that he's convinced that Sherry got up that day and went for a dog to train for an upcoming race on Thanksgiving Day. Then the interviewer says, quote, He thinks she turned up their driveway and down a quiet country road and never came back, unquote. Okay. This is what he has told the interviewers, right? Those were his exact words. Keith is convinced. Keith thinks. And this has me wondering, why doesn't Keith know? He didn't tell the interviewer, Sherry told me that she got up that morning. Sherry told me that she got ready. Sherry told me that she went for a jog. Sherry told me that she was abducted. He said he thinks this is what happened. Why in the world is he speculating? 
Doesn't he know what happened? Didn't she tell him? Is it possible she isn't telling him what happened? Maybe she doesn't want to talk about it? Maybe she's hiding something? Maybe he's had to speculate because she didn't tell him the truth? What do you all think? I don't think I've ever seen a case where their survivor didn't explain to their significant other what happened. They have to tell it to police, right? I guess it's possible that she refused to talk to Keith about it. So he's left here speculating. But he didn't say that. He didn't say, Sherry hasn't opened up to me about this. She isn't comfortable talking to me about this. So this is what I think happened. All of that is so bizarre to me when I watch this interview. As soon as word spread that Sherry was missing, a massive search was launched. Law enforcement, investigators, detectives, everybody mobilized and set up a command center. Also, regular people from around the area joined family and friends in the search. Neighbors, people who didn't even know the Papinis came forward to join in the search effort. Posters and yellow ribbons went up everywhere. Keith, his sister, Sherry's sister, they're all making pleas to the media for her safe return. Unfortunately for Keith, all of his friends and family rallied around him to help keep the children happy as their dad tried to figure out a way to talk to them. At least the older one, who was only four at the time, to talk to them about their mother and try to explain what happened. As the days passed and nothing seemed to be developing, no clues, no sightings, no information, no leads, the investigators on the case are beginning to think about other possibilities. They're beginning to become suspicious of the kidnapping scenario. The sheriff spoke to the media eight days after the abduction and said, quote, we are keeping an open mind to this and we are looking at all avenues. We're not saying it's an abduction, but we're not saying that it's not. Could it be a voluntary disappearance? Could it be involuntary? We don't know at this time. And to that, Keith would fire back. I know she was taken. My family knows that she was taken. But you're obviously not going to come out and say that it's an abduction when you don't have the evidence. That was a little tough to hear. Eventually, the searches for Sherry began to die down as the skepticism began to pick up steam. Investigators had literally no physical evidence except for one thing and that was given to them by the missing person's husband, Keith. The phone, and the two pictures of the phone that he snapped. The sheriff did not mince words. It kinda looked planted, and he was quick to point out the reason why it looked placed and not dropped in a life or death struggle. And the reason is because the earbuds were wound up. Not perfectly, like, Kind of like if you quickly gathered up your earbuds in the palm of your hand and placed them on top of your phone. That's how they were found, along with the hair. Not dropped or thrown in a violent confrontation where you'd expect headphones to be strung across the ground, possibly even separated from the phone. No, the phone was on the ground, face up, and the earbuds rolled up on top of the screen. And the fact that this was given to police by Keith he became their prime suspect in Sherry's disappearance. 
None of Sherry's family would believe that he had anything to do with her disappearance. And from what I could see, the man appears to be deeply in love with Sherry. And this is just a vibe I get, but he seems to love her to the point that it's kind of uncomfortable to watch him talk about it, if that makes any sense. In his interview, he talked about knowing her when they were children and having gone their separate ways only to reconnect later in life. And when he discussed it, he mentioned that when he reunited with her, he gave her a box with all the cards and letters that she had written to him when they were children. He had saved them all. So, it leads me to believe that he long carried a torch for Sherry until he was finally able to reconnect with her. And another detail about his interview that stands out to me is that he doesn't really often refer to Sherry by her name. He repeatedly says, my wife, my wife, my wife. And maybe I'm overanalyzing him, but it feels uncomfortably possessive. I get it. She's his wife. I say my husband too, but I usually say it once and then I switch to some pronouns. But Keith says it a lot. But anyway, in order to have police suspicions off of him, he submitted to a polygraph examination. He was really cooperative. He turned over phones and computers, and he passed a polygraph test. And nine days into the ordeal, he was cleared as a suspect. A GoFundMe was launched to help raise money for the search effort, which raised close to $50,000. And then something completely bizarre happened. An anonymous donor offered what was referred to as a, quote, ransom reward for Sherry Pepini. And this was money completely separate from the family's money. It said, quote, private citizen offering cash ransom payment for immediate release of Sherry Pepini, unquote. And Keith would claim to have no idea who this person was. The anonymous donor gave the specific instructions to contact a person that they've designated to work with them, a negotiator, someone who is a professional in working with ransom demands. His name is Cameron Gamble, and he called himself an international kidnapping ransom consultant. And he claimed that his services had been retained by a person who wishes to remain anonymous. So this Cameron Gamble person, he is a former senior airman who after leaving the military became a consultant. He trained military personnel, law enforcement, as well as private citizens on how to avoid, evade, or escape being captured. And he would say that he wholeheartedly believed that Sherry had been kidnapped. He could see how emotional Keith had been, which is true. The man broke down into tears many, many times over the course of his interviews, as well as during his pleas to the media while his wife was missing. And then of Sherry, Cameron would say, look at her. She just isn't someone who's going to walk away from this life. Now, I have to stop here because to me, He's making somewhat of a superficial judgment about a woman he really knows nothing about. He's looking at all of the happy, beautiful, smiley pictures of Sherry and Keith and is assuming that those are a complete and accurate reflection of love and devotion. So he is a professional, 
And he also gets paid for this as well. And I do think he came to these conclusions based on looking at pictures and news clips. He even said that he did when he stated, quote, Look at her. She's not the type of girl who's going to walk away. I did not like that statement at all. So I don't put a great deal of stock in his opinions. But with Keith's blessings, Cameron takes to YouTube and posted a video addressing the kidnappers with an offer of a six-figure ransom. Let's pause for a moment and talk a little bit more about Cameron Gamble as he emerged as quite a controversial figure in this case. As Cameron had stepped into this and serving as a freelance negotiator for Sherry's safe return, it opened up some questions as to who this guy was and the way he was going about things. He essentially became this middleman of sorts in a very unusual and unconventional way to try to negotiate with the person or persons holding Sherry captive. In his video, he said that he had been authorized by an unnamed donor to pay a six-figure reward for Sherry's safe return, and it would be a no-questions-asked transaction. He wanted to be clear that he was not in cahoots with law enforcement, and law enforcement was quick to echo the sentiment. They really aren't into what he's doing either. Later on in the case, questions as to exactly who this guy was started bubbling to the surface as accusations of being an opportunist looking for the case that's going to make him famous began swirling around him. But he'd be the first to say that all of his intentions are on the up and up and he genuinely wanted to help. And when this random offer of six figures, so we're talking at the very minimum of $100,000 came about, Cameron Gamble was supposedly brought in as a middleman. And when he posted his video on November 18th, 16 days after Sherry vanished, he gave the abductor or abductors 100 hours to take him up on the offer or it would be withdrawn. He said they don't care about getting justice, meaning there would be no fear of being turned into police. There would be no questions asked. They just wanted Sherry back safe and alive. And the Yolo County Sheriff did not like this scheme, not one bit, stating, quote, I felt from the beginning that this could hinder or affect the case. He also pointed out that there had been no ransom demands for Sherry, so essentially there wasn't anything to be negotiated, and all it did was cause a distraction. And furthermore, the sheriff really felt like this unorthodox tactic is just an invite for scams, and if there are indeed real victims involved, it could increase the danger that they are in. I read an article about the kind of business Cameron Gamble is in, and it is by and large kind of pointless that guys like him crop up all the time, trying to bring about new negotiation models, but law enforcement is already pretty well equipped to deal with kidnap negotiations. Like the sheriff had said, Gamble was talking to no one, there had been no evidence of a hostage being held. There was no ransom demand. And there was nothing to indicate Sherry was being held anywhere by anyone wanting to be paid for her release. And it became more of a nuisance than anything else. And in order for somebody like Gamble to be useful, police forces would have to be overwhelmed with kidnappings and ransom demands, and they just aren't. It doesn't happen often enough. And in the very few legitimate kidnappings for ransom that do occur, 
The victim is almost always killed or left to die because they are essentially a witness. And they're just always going to be guys like Gamble who stick their noses into high-profile cases like Sherry's. And as far as Cameron Gamble's background is concerned, that was scrutinized as well when he became a part of the Pepini investigation. He began being accused of being a scam artist himself, and his video with an anonymous donor was accused of being a hoax, and he used it to promote his organization, which was called Project Taken. And he described it as a non-profit, but it was not officially a 501c3 charity. He said he applied, but he never followed through with the process. He receives donations from a local church in Reading, and he says the money doesn't go to the organization, but it does go directly to him to cover costs. He did serve in the Air Force for three years and was promoted to a senior airman, but after an annual physical, he did not pass the eye color test, and this disqualified him from flying. So he was never a pilot. He was trained in operating a boom that refuels planes. From there, he was assigned to vehicle operations, and he received his promotion when he was a key developer for their water survival program. But eventually, his medical waiver was revoked and he was given an honorable discharge. After that, he became an instructor teaching survival, evasion, resistance, and escape programs. And he apparently provides his services for free when it comes to assisting with missing persons cases, including the Stacy Smart case, a woman who went missing on the exact same day as Sherry Papini, only 25 miles or 40 kilometers apart from one another. And by the way, Stacy is still missing to this day. As opposed as the sheriff was to Gamble's involvement, Keith didn't care. He was willing to try anything to find Sherry. But his initial video did not lead to anyone coming forward to claim the ransom or to bring Sherry home. So on November 23rd, Gamble made and uploaded a second video to address the kidnappers. This was the day before Thanksgiving. He stated in part, quote, The world has been looking for Sherry Papini, and now the world is going to be looking for you, whoever you are. And he proceeded to tell these anonymous kidnappers that the ransom offer has been rescinded. But he didn't stop there. He offered an even larger reward than the ransom for anyone who would be able to bring Sherry back home. Essentially, what he's offering is a free-for-all bounty hunt and a reward for the first person to come up with Sherry. Gamble said, quote, I wanted it to be so tempting that the abductor's own mother would turn them in. And this whole scheme had Keith Papini's blessing. He was 100% all in. The next day came, Thanksgiving Day. Keith was going into the 22nd day since Sherry went missing, and he... Family, friends, and loved ones had planned a balloon release for her later that day, hoping to keep attention on her case. Early that morning as he was getting ready, his cell phone rang. It had rang a lot in the last 22 days, but he missed that call. He had been in the bathroom and he didn't hear it in time. But the call was quickly followed up by a call to the house phone. When he answered it, he could hear Sherry screaming Keith's name, and this was all in the background of the phone call. 
She was with a California Highway Patrol officer, and he was trying to calm a hysterical Sherry down. She was found, and she was back. And Keith was overwhelmed emotionally, as he finally had received that call that he had been waiting 22 days for. He was finally hearing Sherry's voice. And of course, he's like, oh my God, oh my God, you're here, it's you, I can't believe this, where are you? And that's the burning question. So where was Sherry Pampini, and where has she been since the day she vanished on November 2nd? Well, Sherry has never spoken publicly about this case. She has been, for the most part, reclusive since she reappeared on November 24th. The only people that she has spoken to about the 22 days that she was missing were the sheriff and Keith. According to Keith, Sherry told him that the day that she was freed, she was bound and she had a chain wrapped around her waist and that one of her wrists was attached to the chain, but he wasn't sure if it was her right or her left wrist, and the other one was chained to the vehicle in which she was riding in. She also had some sort of bag or hood over her head. Sherry also had hose clamps affixed to her ankles, and those were described as pain compliance restraints. Eventually, whatever was keeping her wrists attached to the vehicle was cut. They came to a stop and Sherry was pushed out of the vehicle. And using the hands that was free, she took off the hood but had no idea where she was. She saw a house, so she went in that direction. She approached, but Keith said to her it didn't look very inviting, so she made her way over to another structure, but it was locked and she couldn't get inside. So she headed over to a nearby freeway, and this would be California's Interstate 5, hoping to be able to gain the attention of a passing motorist. But people are driving by, not stopping. Keith described her at this point, screaming so much that she's spitting up blood. Finally, sometime after four in the morning, a woman driving along the five freeway headed to see her family for Thanksgiving, spotted Sherry on the shoulder of the freeway, frantically waving an article of clothing. She said the woman looked panicked, her eyes were widened with fear, and the driver was genuinely shocked to be seeing a sight like this. She was so close to the edge of the road that the driver nearly struck Sherry, so she got the feeling that this had to be serious, that she needed some help because she was standing so precariously close to traffic and it was still very dark. So this motorist pulled off the freeway and called 911. The call went out for emergency vehicles to respond to an unknown medical emergency on the northbound side of the five. There is a female who needed medical attention. Over the radio call, she was described as being heavily battered and it is some sort of assault. Sherry was located on Country Road 17 in Yolo County, about 150 miles or 240 kilometers south of the location from where she disappeared. She was rushed to the hospital and Keith made a beeline to where she had been taken. When he arrived, the hospital had been ordered placed on lockdown. Keith was finally allowed in, but one of the officers pulled him aside. He explained to him 
that Sherry is alive, but he needed to be prepared for what he was about to see. Among other things, she's also been branded. After that, Keith rushed past the officers and into her room. He pulled the curtain aside and laid eyes on his wife for the first time in more than three weeks. And it's really heart-wrenching to watch Keith's interview. He's clearly devastated over what happened to Sherry. He hugged her and kissed her, and he was overwhelmed with joy that she was alive. But he was sick and horrified at the condition that he described her being in. He described her face as being swollen and covered in bruises from being beaten, punched, and kicked. He wouldn't say where on her body that she was branded, but he did say that it wasn't on her face. It was later revealed that she was branded on her left shoulder, but any more details than that have not been released. And all of her hair was cut off, and her nose was purportedly broken. And in the 22 days that she was gone, she lost 15% of her total body weight, weighing only 87 pounds or 40 kilograms when she was found. As the sun rose on that Thanksgiving morning, the news did not immediately become known that Sherry had been found alive, and the balloon release went on as scheduled. Now that Sherry had been recovered, alive, albeit in terrible shape, she was at least alive. According to Sherry's account to investigators, she described her captors as two women who, for the most part, only spoke Spanish. She said they drove a dark SUV and they had at least one handgun. One of them had long black curly hair and her ears were pierced and her eyebrows were thin and she had a heavy accent. The other woman was older with straight black hair with some bits of gray and her eyebrows were thicker. Sherry said they had their faces covered most of the time so she never got a good full look at their faces. And Sherry said she had her head covered much of the time as well, preventing her from seeing much of anything. But this leads us to another one of the questions surrounding this case. Why did it take so long for investigators to put out a police composite sketch of the kidnappers? Because there is a sketch of both unknown women, but it took almost 11 months to get them out there, as they were released in October of 2017. What is the deal with that? Well, investigators have said that although they've been working with Sherry from the very beginning, it took her some time to work through her recovery in order to be comfortable to work with the composite sketch artist. And on top of that, they needed to have the FBI's approval before they could release it to the media. And she was only going to be able to give them a limited amount of information in the way of a description because Sherry said that they tried to cover up their faces with scarves or bandanas. Sherry also said that she tried her best to keep her head down so she wouldn't receive any more beatings. Once the sketches were done, they took even more time to continue to go over them with Sherry, as well as show them to any potential witnesses or people who may have had contact with Sherry in the days prior to her abduction, but nobody was able to recall anyone matching the composites. Investigators were also quick to praise Sherry for doing the best that she could in working with them and putting these drawings together. The investigation into Sherry Papini's case has been kept under tight wraps, 
and much of what they have conducted in terms of search warrants and any information garnered from that is still under seal. But it was revealed that they served nearly 20 warrants and they are looking at every aspect of this case, particularly cell phone records, bank account records, email accounts, and social media. Detectives also traveled out of state as a part of this investigation, as they served at least 12 search warrants in Michigan, and the FBI was assisting law enforcement with that investigation. It's considered to be very sensitive, and they're doing everything they can into no way compromising this. Even Keith Papini getting on TV and conducting interviews, revealing details of the case is causing detectives to cringe as they watch him reveal stuff that they don't want known to the public. They also said that they were looking into the Papini family computers and looking at past relationships. And they also were looking for surveillance footage. And they did find some. In the moments before Sherry was able to flag down that passing motorist, she was captured on surveillance footage from cameras attached to the outside of the buildings that she was trying to access. The footage is in black and white, and it's very dark and grainy because it's early in the morning. Sherry can be seen running towards Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witness about 4.15 in the morning, and a few seconds later she can be seen running back towards the 5 freeway because she was unable to get into the building as nobody was there yet. Seven minutes later, she was discovered by the passing motorist at 4.22 a.m. So with this video in hand, Sherry's story and her timeline seem to line up with what she's reported to them about her abduction. When investigators finally released the sketches of the suspects, the two Hispanic women, this was during the first press briefing that the county sheriff's office had given in 11 months. They also revealed during the briefing that on Sherry's clothing, they found male DNA, and on her body, they found female DNA. Who that DNA belongs to, as far as I can tell, is unknown, but it doesn't belong to Keith, and it doesn't belong to anybody in the FBI database either. They also revealed that according to Sherry, she got into a physical altercation with one of her captors. She said that she had slammed the younger Hispanic woman's head into a toilet during a time that she was let out of captivity to take a shower, and that during that melee that she was cut on the side of her right foot. But the sheriff stated that when she was being treated at the hospital, there was no evidence of a cut on her foot, and none could be seen in any of the photographs they took of Sherry. And there was yet another twist in this case. Investigators finally revealed the reason why they had traveled to Michigan and serve those search warrants. They said that in the days leading up to her having gone missing, Sherry was having a text message exchange with a man in Michigan. So what is this all about? Let's stop and discuss. The text messages that Sherry was sending and receiving from this mystery man, as he's referred to in the media, it wasn't just days, but months prior to her disappearance that the texting was going on. She had apparently known this man for some years, and the Shasta County Sheriff stated, quote, It was a prior contact that she had known for years before, somebody she met and kept in contact with, a male acquaintance that she was talking with through texting. Were they romantically involved? The Sheriff wouldn't say. Though I would love to know this juicy tidbit of information. 
The sheriff said that this man had been in California days before Sherry went missing, but he wasn't in Redding, and they did not find any indication that they had gotten together while he was in the state. So investigators went to Michigan and spoke to the man, and they ruled him out as being involved with Sherry's disappearance. But I really would like to know what they ruled him in on, because in all the new details investigators released, they did not say that the DNA didn't belong to the Michigan man, so that has me wondering. They ruled him out as a suspect in her disappearance, but did his DNA match or not? I couldn't find any information about this, but what you can find is a great deal of speculation about him, and what also came to the surface are some issues surrounding Sherry and her past. And those are pretty much the facts of Sherry's disappearance. There are a few more things that I'm hung up on, and I want to talk about those for a minute. I read in an online forum that Sherry had Michigan Man's contact information disguised in her phone using a female name. I searched around and I was unable to find any reports corroborating this or not, but this Michigan Man is making for an interesting aspect of this case. Remember, early on in the episode, I speculated that Keith behaved oddly when he was looking for his wife because perhaps he was suspicious of her being up to something. To me, it was one of the first thoughts that I had. He comes home, he can't find his wife, so he's checking up on her. Keith, he's so emotional in his television interviews. And I get the feeling that he was and possibly is in a lot of pain over this. I don't know what the right way to describe the impression that I get is. If I could make an analogy, he's like this goofy, nerdy guy who managed to win the hand of the prom queen. I guess kind of like from our episode on the PTA mom, Kent Easter. He's like this dorky guy who's under Jill Easter's thumb all the time. He's like the Pete Davidson, and she's like the Ariana Grande of the relationship. That's the kind of impression that I get. Like he's madly in love, madly in love. She's his entire world, and she knows it. So the fact that she's potentially exchanging texts with Michigan Man and trying to hide it from him wouldn't surprise me. Infidelity was also an element in the Easter's marriage as well on the part of Jill, if you recall that. One of the first rumors that began spreading around Redding in the wake of Sherry's disappearance and reappearance was that she was preparing to meet up with a doctor from Detroit. This would make sense and line up with the Michigan man information that's out there. It's been reported that the text conversations began picking up pace in the months prior to her disappearance and it seemed as though he was planning to come to California and they had plans to meet up. And the reasons why this rumor began to pick up steam is because of information regarding Sherry's past that also began to surface, and it did not paint a pretty picture of the pretty mom. It's been stated in several forums, as well as one solidly documented incident, that Sherry Pepini has a lengthy history of lying and deceiving people. People who knew her from childhood said that there was an incident at camp where Sherry faked either being sick or having an injury in order to garner sympathy and attention. 
She had been known to lie about going to visit family members when she was actually going off to be with a love interest. It's been reported that Sherry has stolen from her family. It's also been reported that back in the early 2000s, Sherry, under her maiden name, Sherry Grafe, which is spelled G-R-A-E-F-F, was writing articles to a now-defunct racist lifestyle webpage called Skinheads with a Z. And from what people were able to determine from the writings, some of the details fit what they know about Sherry. But also, she would lie a lot about herself and her family in her writings, as well as speak about her racist and bigoted viewpoints. She and her father and her ex-husband have said that it wasn't her who wrote those articles on skinheads, that it was someone who was getting back at Sherry and did this in order to make her look bad and to portray her as a racist. People are quick to credit Sherry with having written the articles herself because nobody would go through all the trouble of writing these inflammatory articles just to get back at somebody, especially in 2003. Social media wasn't even a thing yet, and things like that didn't get around quickly enough to damage a person's reputation. It's widely believed that Sherry Papini is a racist and that she's also a narcissist and she enjoyed the attention that she would get from the members of the Skinheads Forum, and she wrote those things, never realizing the permanence of cyberspace, and that they would be floating around the interwebs forevermore. And let me ask you this. If you were, for whatever reason, planning a hoax kidnapping, would a racist person attempt to point the finger at a minority, like Sherry did, to Hispanic women? And if the kidnapping was faked, if she were to accuse Hispanic men, would there be more of a likelihood that men would not let her go, that they may have sexually assaulted her, and they most likely would have killed her? If she said two men abducted her, it would be difficult to try and explain why they didn't harm her in those ways. But accuse two women, then that eliminates those questions. People don't feel like it's a coincidence that Sherry has been attached to these racist articles. And then she went on to claim that she was kidnapped by two Hispanic women. So back to Sherry's dodgy past. She kept a wedding blog and lied about never having lived with a man before. But people who knew her knew this wasn't true. Some have even said that Keith didn't even know Sherry had previously been married. She's been known to lie about her age and many believe that she has repeatedly lied about this kidnapping. She's lied to police. She's lied to her loved ones. She's lied to her husband. Some individuals who know Sherry would say that she is nearly incapable of telling the truth. The relationship with her family is strained, and she has caused a division amongst them. Some absolutely believe her. Others, absolutely not. She has been described as the kind of person who will keep you close as long as you don't ask too many questions and just go along with what she says and does. And if you can do that, then she will associate with you. But if you don't, then you're no good to her because lies need a supporting cast. It's been speculated that Sherry took issue with Hispanic people for the majority of her life, and it's been insinuated that the culprits being Hispanic is, again, no coincidence. Where this information comes from is likely from Sherry's past internet activities, but because of time constraints, I don't have time to dig deep in the Wayback Machine 
to look up all that archive stuff. So this, what I'm telling you, comes from a blog that I read, so it's speculation. The theme of racism in Sherry's background is, however, pretty consistent through and through. And perhaps knowing and understanding that aspect of her is important when deciding how we feel about her alleged abduction. And another question that looms. Why would Sherry be bound with restraints if the plan was to release her? I hadn't pondered that as much as I pondered the entire release itself. It seemed a little extra. It reminded me of the hair and the headphones. It feels staged. I don't know that, but when I think about all the details of her recovery, especially the one hand being free, technically, everything could have been done and undone with one hand. Why not zip-tie both hands? Because one needed to be free in order for Sherry to navigate her recovery by herself. I don't know. And then what about the Hispanic women? Hispanic women committing this type of crime, going around kidnapping joggers with no apparent motive, no demand for ransom, and then inexplicably just let her go? Nothing about this case fits the profile of an abduction. What's the reason for all of this? Of course, Sherry can't say because they spoke Spanish. On March 13, 2017, ABC News reported that records from a 2003 911 call log were being released to the Sacramento Bee. The records revealed that Sherry's mom, Loretta Grave, made a phone call to 911 on December 17, 2003, asking for help. That her then 21-year-old daughter was, quote, harming herself and blaming it on me, unquote. The call log also indicated that Sherry's mom contacted authorities seeking advice about what to do regarding Sherry because her daughter was planning on moving back in with her and she had some concerns. The report is pretty short, and it doesn't have a lot of details, and it doesn't say whether or not Sherry actually harmed herself. The log also had an incident dated October 1st, 2000, when Sherry's sister Sheila called and said that her sister kicked in her back door, but she wasn't sure if she actually came inside, and nothing was stolen. Later on that same day that her sister called about the kicked-in door, Sherry's father, Richard Grave filed a complaint that Sherry vandalized his home in Shasta Lake, California. Three years later, on October 3, 2003, Sherry's father filed yet another complaint that there had been an unauthorized withdrawal made from his bank account, that Sherry was living with him at the time, and he suspected that it was her. Sherry was never investigated or charged with anything related to the call log. But the Shasta County Sheriff did say that Sherry's family made numerous calls to their office asking questions and seeking advice from law enforcement about legal matters pertaining to Sherry. So, Sherry's infidelity. It is all speculation, but she has been rumored to be having an affair with that doctor from Detroit and they were supposedly planning a rendezvous in San Francisco the weekend that she disappeared. It's not clear if he lives in San Francisco or if he lives in Michigan or if he sometimes works here or there, whichever. But
But the word is he received a call about a family emergency back in Michigan and ended up having to return there that weekend instead of his rendezvous with Sherry in San Francisco. So law enforcement tracked him down to see if he had any information about what happened to Sherry and he was cleared. The theory has been floated that he did indeed come to California, but once Sherry's disappearance hit the media, he got the heck out of California once he realized who he was involved with. Something like this could potentially be career ruining. So why? Why the 22 days? Maybe Sherry got upset when Dr. Michigan Man left town and she didn't want to go back to Keith, her best buy guy, just yet. And Keith, Sherry's personal doormat, how is he ever going to get his wife to come home? Maybe this was some elaborate way of getting police involved in the case of his quote-unquote missing wife. Because if it's true... This doesn't sound like it's Sherry's first rodeo. Based on what we know about her and her erratic behaviors, maybe she settled for Keith. No doubt Sherry is a beautiful woman and could have landed herself an extremely wealthy husband if she wasn't such an unhinged, deceitful person. The kind of person a successful doctor is not going to settle for no matter how pretty she is. She was extramarital affair material, but she is not the doctor's wife material. Don't misread what I'm saying. Working at Best Buy is a perfectly legitimate place of employment. And Keith, well, I sympathize with the guy a lot. It feels like he's trying his best. But I kind of sort of think he felt like he won the lottery when he married Sherry. And for her, she probably felt like she scraped the bottom of the barrel because she wasn't going to be able to marry a doctor. Again, this is all speculation on my part, if we are looking for a motive for Sherry and Keith's actions. And why isn't law enforcement calling foul? Maybe because they're not trying to stir things up with the couple. If they were to say that they didn't believe them, both Sherry and Keith would stop cooperating. And on top of that, investigators can't let anything get out to the media. And what they do tell is very measured because they don't want Sherry and Keith to know what they know. So my takeaway when it comes to Sherry and all of this, I tend to think that every single aspect of her life as we know it was completely staged for her audience. I think she was narcissistic, and I believe it shows in every single picture that you see of her online. She is the star of every social media post, and her husband is just her prop. Sometimes he's not even looking at the camera in the pictures while she is shining in all of them. Sometimes his eyes are cast down, even his back turned completely away while her smile beams. It's pictures ad nauseum. Her sister is the one that called her super mom because of all of her mom amazingness, to the point that it's borderline annoying. I don't think Sherry felt like Keith was good enough for her. He didn't have the most prestigious job in the world. I've never worked at Best Buy, but I don't imagine 
an audio video specialist is making that great of an annual salary. And they lived in Keith's childhood home. And I don't know what that means. Did they live with his mom? Was the home gifted to them? Because I don't suspect that he was paying a hefty mortgage and supporting a family of four with a stay-at-home mom and paying for daycare on Best Buy wages in Northern California, no less, one of the costliest areas in the country. And Keith, in his interviews, he gushed and gushed about how astoundingly well Sherry made it through this ordeal. It's quite a story to sell. And the fact that Keith went on 2020 a week after she came back was looked at as a bizarre move. It didn't seem like he was worried about jeopardizing the investigation as law enforcement even cringed at some of the things that he was saying. Did he not worry about it because there was no need to? Because no Hispanic women existed? Because the whole thing was a hoax? Or did he do it to spite law enforcement because they didn't believe him? And so he had to do what he had to do to get his side of the story out there. Who knows? The one last thing I want to talk about is the injuries that Sherry is purported to have sustained. I'm assuming that she was battered. And I don't think police would say that she was if she wasn't. But if this was a hoax, then this too would have had to have been staged. Would she have done all of this to herself? Or allow it to be done? The cutting off of the hair? The pummeling of her face? The branding on her shoulder? Well, think about it for a sec. One of the most solid pieces of evidence we have in this is that 911 call Sherry's mom made saying that she was harming herself. And it's because of that that I do believe Sherry is capable of self-harm to the point necessary to push a false narrative because there's proof that she's done it before. Absolutely, I believe she's capable of it. I'm going to end this here for now, dreamers, but I'll tell you what. I am very, very curious as to what all of you think about Sherry Papini's disappearance. I am still uncertain because I don't know what happened to her for those 22 days that she was gone. I don't know how badly she was injured, and I don't know if it was a hoax or not. I feel like the sheriff's department would have been able to uncover those facts by now and bring about some charges against her and possibly Keith, but they've been so tight-lipped about everything thus far, and they haven't come forward at all lately with any information. Either that, or some have suggested that this particular Northern California sheriff in the lead in this investigation is somewhat incompetent. So, what do you all think about this case? I want to start a discussion thread in our Facebook page so we can talk more about it. Hopefully civilly. I'm not decided yet on what I think. The fact is, is I don't know. But I am super skeptical. And you could probably tell through the duration of this episode that I'm slightly biased. So let's bring this to a close and we'll talk about it in the upcoming week. I will follow up with an addendum to this story and include all of your ideas, theories, and speculations. I just feel like I haven't really scratched the surface of this case yet. 
And that brings this 70th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Let's get over to the discussion page and talk about this. I'm dying to know what you all think. And I need help making up my mind one way or another. If you aren't a member, request to join and you shall be approved. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. You can contact the show directly by email at CaliforniaPod at gmail.com or you can message me directly on any of the social media platforms that I've mentioned. Lately, I've been missing a lot of the comments on the Facebook page. I don't know why it seems to be scrolling through really fast. So if you have any questions for me, the best thing to do is to message me directly because I don't always see all of your comments. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I'm very proud and excited to be a part of this group of shows and hosts. So please come visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, which I see some of you have been shopping at. Thank you so much. Our blog. And if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for listening. This weekend, we are celebrating Veterans Day. So I would like to say thank you to all of you who have served our country. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams. Over 40 years, Hooker Chemical Corporation dumped over 80 toxic substances at Love Connect. There is substantial medical opinion that continued use of the Dalcon Shield may pose a serious personal health hazard. Oh, I hate all of you! I hate you! He's accused of orchestrating the largest lotto scam ever. In opening arguments, prosecutor Jerry Miller portrayed Baker as a greedy, money-hungry showman who practiced fraud disguised as religion. Martin Shkreli has become the most hated man in America. My kid's not here! He's dead! Because of him! He ruined my life! Swindled is a podcast that uses narrative storytelling, archival audio, and immersive soundscapes to explore true cases of white-collar crime and corporate greed. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you may get your podcasts. For more information about the show, visit our website at swindledpodcasts.com. 